the JTAP podcast, episode 54. Send it. I can do that. JTAX. Clearing it hot, making it rain, and bringing the boom boom. Cool. Welcome, everybody, to episode 54 of the JTAP podcast. A friend of mine from a long, long time ago, coming from us from the other side of the world. Tom, appreciate you setting aside some time and sitting down with me. No, it's, no thanks for the invite, uh, Neil. It's, um, yeah, I've listened to a couple of the podcasts, driving to and from work, and yeah, it's a fantastic initiative, mate. So well done, mate. Yeah, pleasure to be on. Thanks, man. Uh, like I always say at the beginning of these things, get some admin out of the way. There's nothing that will be discussed on here that probably isn't available on anything open source and you know everyone's opinion on here is their own and not that of any organization tom obviously i've been fortunate enough to work alongside you and know you quite well but uh, people tuning in won't be so take us all the way back to the start all the way back to the beginning where do you come from man where do you grow up what's the family structure look like what's school like for you as a as a young man Yeah, so I uh, grew up in uh, Croydon, South London. So, um, yeah, my, I suppose my early years, I did spend a little bit of time out of the country. So uh, my my dad was actually a civil contractor working with the British Army out in Germany. So spent three years out there, sort of my very early years, and then and then moved back to the UK and uh, uh, to, to Croydon. Grew up in Croydon, obviously did all my school in there. Um, secondary school. Uh, down the road in, in Purley at, at John Fisher. So played a lot of rugby, um, kept myself fit, athletics and that sort of stuff. Um, went through my school years, no no real uh, major hiccups or anything like that. Sort of, uh, but I suppose when I reached the age of probably 13, 14, 15, really started to sort of think about what I was going to do in my life, what, what, what I wanted to do. And I suppose the only thing I ever wanted to do was, was join up. So, um, yeah, towards the age of 14, you know, maybe 15, 16, started getting itchy feet, you know, wanted to get out there. And, um, at that time, sort of, yeah, my, my mum and dad sort of pushed me to, to stay in school, get my GCSEs under my belt. Um, and then, and then move on and try and do A levels. But I suppose by the time I got to, you know, 16, I was chomping at the bit to, to join up and I joined Air Cadets along the way. And um, that was a, a big eye opener of to what the military was like and what opportunities were out there. So, um, yeah, I had some tough discussions with my mum and dad when I was sort of about 16 and a half, 17, flunked my A-levels, couldn't be bothered, just wanted to play rugby, you know, do stuff with Air Cadets and that type of stuff. Uh, and that, and then, yeah, eventually um, pulled the plug on on schooling, and and I think I was, I think I was seventeen when I finally pulled the plug and left school officially, and so sort of, yeah, did a, a year of A levels and then stopped it there, um, and then yeah, that's that when I sort of applied for the the RAF, RAF and RF regiment, I should say, um, yeah, and then joined them on when I was about seventeen and a half, I think. Where, where's that influence come from? You said obviously you were out in Germany briefly with your dad doing contracting and stuff like that. But is there a, is there a service in the family? Is there other people serving? Where did it sort of like come from? What made you go even into the air cadets or anything like that? Uh, so, I mean, the only military connection I've got in my family is my great granddad on my dad's side. Uh, he was in the, the Navy. 
Um, so he served First World War, Second World War on um, on the aircraft carriers, so the Ark Royal. I think in the Second World War, it's definitely the Ark Royal. I'm not too sure about uh, First World War. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that, those early impressions of living on a military camp, being taken to play school in a in a in a white minibus driven by a soldier you know i think my dad was based at bielefeld which was the royal logistics corps or it would have been the royal transport corps at that time so there was plenty of um sort of armor i think it was chieftain tanks there as well so that's kind of i remember going to those those um, days out as a, as a little kid and that's kind of i think probably what sparked my my uh, ambitions to to join up yeah I just um, think- and then yeah yeah. It's incredible. Like we look at our, our like really small careers, and you think about your great granddad serving in the first and second world war. You just like what, what a story, you know? Where's the podcast about that guy? But uh, yeah, so yeah. that that spark to join, like, does it come directly from the air cadets? Is this like what made you go RAF regiment? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, in part being part of the air cadets. So um, when I grew up in in Croydon, we had Biggin Hill. Um, airfield which was or uh, airbase or airfield was just down the down the road so going to those uh you know air shows every year kind of sort of took me towards maybe the RAF and and you know having a look at the planes and all that type of stuff and then that air cadets going on annual camps and all that type of stuff kind of saw you saw what what it wasn't just the military there are actually different branches and different trades and different regiments and cap badges and that type of stuff and suddenly you go wow yeah it's it's quite a diverse bunch of people that you, and you can pretty much do what you want um but i suppose i was you know doing the field craft and the exercises with the uh with the air cadets that kind of put me towards you know doing the going into the RAF regiment and that, that infantry based role um certainly looked the the most appealing and the the sexiest you know yeah what uh what year was it that you you started basic uh i started march uh 1999 so yeah joined up with um a lad called uh jack russell terry okay. russell so he's out now um but um but wes cummings on the same course as, as wes i know you know uh, wes cummings so um, yes yeah. yeah, with every wes now and then yeah. that's it yeah so um yeah so joined march 99 um and then graduated or or passed the trainee gunner course in august 99 yeah you um so when you joined up did you know where you wanted to go did you know the pathway out the other end or was it during basic training you sort of like started to gain a deeper understanding of like how the regiment was broken up and what what your options were was there like an influence in there a person or what was it that sent like made you dream fill your dream sheet in the way you did yeah, I, sp- I suppose filling out my dream sheet was yeah quite a, f- a funny thing. So I went through going through basics. I um, and if if Terry and J- uh, and Wes listen to this, they'll be laughing their heads off. But so when we went through basics, um, yeah, we all wanted to go to two squadron. But for, for the life of me, when I was doing the assault course, I couldn't get over the nine foot wall. And at that point at training, it wasn't a mandatory requirement. So it was yeah, you had a couple of attempts. If you didn't get it, you just ran around it and cracked on so i had it i had a big dilemma in my filling out my dream sheet i desperately wanted to go to two squadron i'd heard about two squadron you know i'd heard about you know the the airborne capability and you know it set itself aside from 
um, the other regiment squadrons or the other field squadrons. So I, was, I definitely wanted to go field um, just because of that infantry, you know, um, rifle flight um, uh, capability. And then obviously two squadrons because of the parachute capability. But yeah, because I couldn't get over the nine foot wall, <laughs> I, uh, I, I resided myself to go, well, I need to, I need to do something about this. So why don't I just, uh, you know, I, I'll select one squadron. So, you know, I, it was either one squadron, it was either two squadron or one squadron. I said, right, well, you know, I put on my dream sheet, one squadron. I could go there, build up my fitness, you know, get, get some strength. And then at some point I would, I would attempt uh, pre-power and, and eventually get over that nine foot wall. So yeah, that's my, uh, that was my little dilemma when I was a, a an 18 year old, 19 year old lad. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it, it's an interesting sort of uh thing that goes from your mind because I, I don't think the tom that i know would do that now but uh, you know it's funny how that 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 nine foot wall thing had got got inside your head and you filled it in so coming out of the uh out of basic training you get get yeah you get yeah. what's at the top of your list and you go in there what's that like turning up obviously you've done basic training and you know absolutely everything there's nothing else to be learned at that point um so you turn up on the <laughs> yeah. squadron how quickly did they slap that out you <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah exactly yeah you're a hero and you're in your own nappy break aren't you but suddenly yeah uh, yeah you I, but i think though that the instructors so i had some really good instructors on on my training flight going through and um a mixture as well there was the, the two squadron cohort and then there was a couple of guys for there was one guy uh, fraser mack who was from uh one squadron so he he sort of I suppose when he found out that I was posted to one squadron sort of sat me down and sort of had a chat through and told me what it was like and you know a couple of names and and things like that and you know what not to do and what what to do so you kind of go down there with these preconceptions of how you should behave and how you should act and um yeah it's really interesting so yeah listening to to Donk Slater's uh, podcast you know he I think he joined one squadron about six months before myself yeah um so like you say he had that whole transition of one squadron coming back from germany to, to saint morgan so we kind of turned up six months later myself and another lad robbo um and the squadron was bedded in at, at saint morgan um and uh yeah i actually went on to the same flight as as donk so we were, we both um were on on a flight together um initially uh, and then i think he he went on from did his sniper training and and uh sort of in, in hq flight but um yeah yeah nerve-wracking you turn up you know there's some you're into you go from training where it's structured and you, you know you're pretty much put in your place and you go to a squadron where it's a, just a totally different i suppose um environment where you know you're you're a, you're a boy amongst men almost you know where you know you've kind of just got to keep your, your eyes and ears open and, and keep your mouth shut and just do as you're told. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you turn into a pro surfer uh, being down on, on one, <laughs> but other than all the time you were spending <laughs> at the beach with obviously quite a lot mm -hmm. of sun cream on, what, what else was going on in those <laughs> early years before the, you know, the beginning of the 2000s? Yeah, it's pretty quiet. I mean, we had um, some kind of standard... Um, uh, deployments that we that went on so Kuwait Ali Al Salem Air Base so doing the I suppose the, the the ground security role there force protection security role there so that was yeah, at that point that was the squadrons were rotating through a, a flight plus maybe so you were doing you know two three uh, two or three months rotations so I actually got called off my 
um, leave post training early to go and uh, go to the squadron and start the pre-deployment training to go out there. So we were actually blessing in disguise. You know, you're, you're into a new squadron, you don't know anyone into a new flight, you don't know anyone, but you do your pre-deployment training and you get to know people and, you know, you kind of get dragged along and, and, and shoved into, into the right places where you need to be. And then, then suddenly you find yourself at Bryce Norton flying out to Kuwait. And when you're 19, having joined the military to go away and deploy, suddenly you're like, you know, looking back, it was, uh, you know, it was a, I don't want to say a safe tour, but it was, it was a quite a sort of benign sort of mundane tasking. But for a 19 year old lad who joined up to go away, it's kind of all your dreams come true. Yeah. 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 I think that's great. I think um, operations definitely um, bring, units together a lot quicker than mm. you know just another training uh, cycle for for the sake of a training cycle um, yeah and it's something that yeah it, it's some it's a challenging time when you're not you haven't got those operations so coming in being able to get away so quickly is incredible so you do yeah. obviously Ali Al Salam um you come back from there how long do you stay on one how many cycles do you do with them before you make a, a decision to move on because you go you you promote before that don't you no no i was on i was only on one squadron for about 18 months so we deployed and we deployed we did that tour came back um like i say because the squadron was kind of doing sort of a you know an eight week rule month between the flights um it was pretty quick turnaround before i went again so i actually think I actually think in that that period of time between going away first time came back I actually applied for my pre-para um, and was doing my training and then actually went to uh, and did my pre-para I'm sure it was September October 2000 um, and then went away did my pre-para was successful came back to the squadron deployed back out to um, Q8 for a second tour with with a flight um, and then when I came back um, from uh, Q8 for the second time, that's when I got posted to, to two squadron. So wow. only a very short time on one squadron. It's kind of, yeah, what I planned to do of go to one squadron, you know, build myself up, you know, from a, a strength perspective, but also from a knowledge perspective. And then, yeah, then, then went across to two squadron. So, yeah, it's very short when I look back. What do you what do you think like the main difference is once you've obviously got settled into two, obviously you'd seen one squadron, you'd seen the way they'd operated. It was it a huge difference arriving into that a different hangar? I know obviously the part of the world you've been obviously at in Barry St Edmunds and around that area before yeah. during basic, but I guess it doesn't look the same as it does on, on squadron life. So I guess the two comparisons would be what does it look like inside the lines on a squadron? Yeah, yeah. I think obviously you, you you're at Honington and you're in training and you see a, you have a totally different outlook that you do when you're on a uh, when you're on a squadron. So you know, two sides of the same coin almost. But on one side you're a fresh young lad, don't know any better, um, just get told what to do and when and and how well to do it, and you know you achieve the standard required and 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 graduate. So having done that, then gone away, gone to a squadron, deployed seeing how the real world operates, seeing how you integrate with other members of the flight, how, you know, you, you know, you know sort of being a sprog and then being 
you know, you get that coaching and mentoring, let's say, um, <laughs> slightly different to what you were doing in a training environment. And yeah, it makes you stronger ultimately, uh, which is a good thing. And then, and then, yeah, coming back to going back to Honington, yeah, it's, it's surreal because you're suddenly there having deployed twice, having passed my pre-power, um, having made friends who had also got posted from one squadron to Honington. So knowing them there, you suddenly find that, you know, being someone new to a regiment, to a squadron, suddenly you've got, you know, a network of people that you can say hello to and suddenly you start becoming something, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I found. Uh, yeah. That's what I found when I've moved to two squadron is that I'd already had, you know, 18 months experience up my sleeve. I say deployed twice, you know, but you know, like I say, they were relatively uh, um, sort of soft tours, should we say, but it's that whole, um, how do you can, conduct yourself and what does good look like and you know your kit husbandry and your admin and making sure that you know you keep yourself fit all those little things that kind of make you you know better as a as a soldier and a gunner so yeah so life on on two yeah. like where, where's the squadron in, in its cycle at that time because i know you know each squadron kind of like ends up in a line behind another squadron and very much so you see the same sort of squadron like you and I, obviously, we saw 51 Squadron because they would be mm. the ones replacing us. It was What was it like when you arrived on two? Did, did you have a line up to go away again or what was the squadron preparing for? Uh, yep, so I went straight back out to Kuwait with two Squadron. <laughs> yeah, taking over so from. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, so I, I got posted to, I was, yeah, on sea flight. Um, so, and we were due to, to go back out there so I think I joined so I did my jumps course so joined the squadron when I got back from Kuwait then I did my jumps course in May 2001 um, and then I'm sure we deployed it was yeah it must have been sort of July August time because we were out there when 9-11 uh, happened right. so I was up at um, yeah we were doing four month deployments for that one so yeah, I was I was up actually up at PBDS outside Ali Al Salem, um, manning that little out, little outpost when uh, when nine uh, eleven happened and um, yeah saw it on the on the little TV in the in the in the admin tent. Same uh, same tour as uh, Josh from episode, the last episode. Yes, with, with yeah, yeah. So Josh, <laughs> yeah, Josh and I were on uh, on sea flight, so we were out on the the same tour. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so that was that was pretty pretty crazy. But um, no, I, I love that tour. That was probably my favourite tour because I posted into into uh, into two squadron. You know, new to the squadron, new to the flight. Yeah, had made some friends on pre para, um, which was great. And then obviously, you know, uh, met back up with and Jack who I'd gone through basics with who completed two squadron so I was I went on to sea flight with them which was fantastic um, and then because I'd done the two tours um, with one I they put me into the role of, of two IC um, on, on the flight which was fantastic so yeah having that additional responsibility knowing the ground knowing just the little intricacies of admin and you know getting on and off base and things like that just really helped uh, so did you, yeah. you, did you got your jumps course in the gap in between before you deployed or was it when you came back? 
Uh, so as soon as pretty much I was very very lucky is when I got onto the squadron so again same jumps course as uh, Josh and Cy Ballard so um, <laughs> yeah so it kind of all just perfectly aligned you know couple of tours you know pre-para smash that to two squadron you know straight onto the jumps course straight out on ops with two squadron you're kind of like that's kind of your it's pretty much gold plated, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and and getting, yeah, I suppose that dream sheet plan seemed to uh, to pl- play out exactly how you'd uh, imagined it would. I'm sure there's uh, a lot of people who yes. have, uh, would <laughs> would go back and uh, take that if they could. Um, so obviously you're <laughs> on to you come back from there. Nine eleven happens. Sort of for, for yourself then those sort of early years in the twenty uh, sort of twenty one and onwards. How does that start to shape your life? Like what happens to you? Obviously you're two IC on a section, you've deployed operationally. Do you come back? How long is it before you get an FT and you start to see things like how that starts to affect the way we train, how the start, the way we deploy, et cetera. Yeah. So I think, yeah, came back um, from Q8, uh, the back end of 2001. So it's December time. Um, and then obviously went off on leave and all that good stuff. And then came back in, in January, 2002, um, and then it was just, you know, going through all the, you know, run of the mill exercises, um, GPMG, SF Carter. Um, so, uh, with, uh, uh, Brew Butler on, on the gun section for, for sea flight. So, uh, again, that was, you know, Jack Russell, um, Ryan alone, yeah, myself and a few others on there. So, you know, again, fantastic bags of training, bags of fitness, um, just, you know, being a, a group of, young men just absolutely living the dream enjoying it you know um there's obviously a, a slight step change so obviously with 9-11 happening um a little bit more focus on um make you know for example force protection out of Ali Al Salem that started to step up so we saw a gradual increase in uh, um but then also little things like you know we would get into a proper routine where you'd, you'd go through the r1 r2 r3 r4 and find yourself on those readiness um those readiness levels and i think it, and it ran in between like unfortunately when the the f14s crashed up in um Aviemore in scotland back i think maybe it was early 2002 you know suddenly found ourselves on a c130 flying up to scotland to do crash guard you know that's kind of those type of um sort of you know little you know events that happen that's are always testing you always kind of you know so it was definitely a step change in how the irish regiment was being used and that kind of rapid reaction type aspect to it um so yeah that took two th- through 2002 um and then it was 2000 and obviously yeah um Iraq, the, the second Gulf War, 2003. So we actually deployed a little bit ahead of that, just on force protection duties. Um, uh, sea flight did and, and, and other flights. So we were providing force protection um, in Jordan. And then from there, that was kind of the step change into, right, you know, Gulf War Two, you know, deploying out, um, the, the whole squadron deployed um, um, to Iraq, um, which was, you know, again, totally different um, dynamic there. We were, some of our task was around um, some of the, you know, CBRN because of the threat of CBRN and things like that. You know, we were retasked to do decontamination and that type of stuff. So suddenly it's another 
another aspect of the military that you're kind of getting introduced to. So it wasn't just you run of the mill section attack, blah, 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 as well. Now you're doing Kazivaks in NBC suits and you know, all this type of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's pretty disgusting. crazy. Yeah. When I look, yeah, when I look, when I look back now, yeah, you think, yeah, oh, wow, that was, you yeah, know, it was good fun. It was different. It was challenging. Yeah. But then, you know, as with the military, as we all know, those that have served is that, you know, there's, there's still plenty of time stood around the, tr- around the trailers, um, you know, putting in barbed wire fences and all the, I suppose, all the, the, the mundane tasks. But again, it, when I look back now, it, you know, it's all part and parcel of developing as an individual and as a team and, you know, group of people, you know? Yeah. I, and obviously I'm looking at like sort of where my age is now and, my, and, uh, there was a guy, Stevie Clayton, I don't know, you might know Stevie uh, Clayton, but he, when he was my senior, yeah. he turned around to me and said, get a notebook out now as an LAC and write down every time you're stood around doing nothing, try and record the time. And when you get to where I am today, you'll have added up all that time. And obviously as a young man, I was like, he's just a <laughs> crazy old senior NCO, so I'm not going to listen to him. But if I'd written that down now, yeah. I wonder what that time of being stood around, you know, the hurry up and wait, uh, situation uh, how much time I would have um, used up if uh, if there's sort of a obviously you're going to get to the sort of senior part of being an SAC and, and obviously the world's RF regiment's changed it's got Lance Corkles and stuff like that and that's a change for the sort of the better when does your, you get offered promotion and sort of what's the biggest influence who do you think you try to sort of shape yourself around as a junior NCO who did you kind of model yourself on going forward uh yeah, so uh, yeah, we deployed out to Iraq, and then to, uh, in two thousand and three, that's when I picked up promotion to uh, to corporal. So I went away and did my FT one, and I and I think back at that point in time, you know, the section commanders I had, you know, and I think you know, all of them are still serving, and I think it's just little bits from each. You know, some were stronger than others, some were more were more diligent than others, some were more down to earth than others. But it's certainly it's the it's your section commanders that that um, really do shape how you behave, how you act, how you conduct yourself. You know, and and also you know the, to a certain extent as well the the, the tax sergeants, but they're they're or the platoon side flight sergeant, they're, but they're more of a, an arms reach. It's the section commanders. They're the ones that are beasting you because you've forgotten to do something, or you know shouting you because you've not done something correctly, or giving you praise when you have done something yeah they're, they're the ones that that shape you um and that's kind of what took me onto my next stage um when i got corporal so when i was promoted to, to corporal i didn't stay on two squadron um i got posted to to training wing um and uh, and yeah at that point there when i went when i got posted to training wing i actually went to training support flight first so the mighty 401st 10th division so yeah yeah going from two squadron going from uh being on sea flight being a machine gunner you know gone to gone to war in you know inverted bracket do you know what i mean but you know yep. deployed there and suddenly you're at training support flight putting up tents and kitchens for you know for the for the training teams that sort of stuff so it was called it kind of like you know hero to zero in a, in a in a couple of months but again when i look back at that now that taught me so much and prepared me so much for being section commander back on the squadron or even when I was you know when I was a sergeant because the logistics around you know making sure you've got enough supplies and enough water and all this type of stuff 
it kind of it kind of came second nature so it was a blessing in disguise yeah so but whilst whilst i was on tsf um i managed to jump across the road and, and get into 159 and went on to mike teeler training flight as a as a corporal there as, a, as an instructor um and that i loved that that was hands down the most rewarding three years of my career um because you were there having and only myself having gone through it you know five years ago myself um there i was training up lads to be you know go through training be in the regiment go and serve on the squadrons that i'd served on and that was it was it was, it was humbling yeah you know, and and i look back now as well um and the the lads that i took through on the training flights on Mike Taylor flight that graduated and went out to the squadrons again, two years down the line, I was, I was serving with them on, on operations in Iraq and, and Afghan. So it's amazing. Yeah. And, but yeah, looking back at that, that was my most, I suppose, rewarding posting as a junior NCO instructor. It's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I think I would encourage people to try and get themselves into those roles. I mean, it's hugely important to pass on that knowledge to the next generation. Yeah. I, I know I've never gone to, to training wing and done the basic training or anything like that. But from the, the time I've had doing training, like you said, the reward of it is mm. huge. It's almost like it's an honor. Yeah. You should be like, feel truly privileged to get the opportunity to like pass on the information. You know, the only thing I would say is, you know, try not to stay there too long, get in, pass on a, mm a bit of information and, and, and roll and roll back on or roll out to something else. Even if it's another training position, but just move to something, yeah. something new. Don't stay in, a, in, in one position too long, but it should be an honor to go back and yeah. teach people um, something. I like the fact that obviously you got given a challenge in position in uh, 4001 there. And, and, and obviously with hindsight, you can see what well, you could see even when you got to being a senior NCO, the importance of those things because logistics is, is the key if you, if you don't have logistics it's all going to come on stuck you know you're only going to get short-term yeah. gains yeah. um without it yeah and, and like you said it had an influence yeah. when you came back to two and and the way you conducted yourself i mean uh, you yeah. speak to the guys who know you um from being an sac and obviously there's some brilliant stories and, and i'm sure you'll tell us a few but you know some of them probably won't be told for good for good reason <laughs> but like um the the tom that i met when you came to when I came to two was I'm sure a very different person to the stories that I was told for sure. Um, and you, and obviously that's probably the influence from those times, right? Yeah. Look, you know, when you, you, you're a young lad and you're, you're new into this regiment, into this squadron, into this flight and you've, you've, yeah, you've got your, your mates with you who you live and live and breathe and sleep together and just you're just living in each other's pockets you know you you get it you get up to some stupid shit you know you really do and it, and yeah and I, I i look back and yeah i think on some of the stuff thank god i didn't get caught <laughs> yeah but 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 again you know i i don't regret one ounce of it it was like you say it makes you who you are um i've made friends that um i'm still you know close friends with now you know, it's like we spoke, you know, when we caught up the other day just to discuss what we were going to do today. And, you know, we haven't spoke to each other for eight years. The last time I saw you was in 2012. And it was when we did speak, it was like I spoke to you yesterday. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's crazy. So, yeah, and there's, yeah, like you say, there's plenty of funny stories. And, and um, yeah, I look back now and I, I yeah, um, I don't regret any of it. It's, 
it's made me who I am today. <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously, you've named it as some some people like Bally, and um, you know, there's obviously there's Bez who's sort of like going through as well. Like I guess Bez was behind you, but like that that quick progression through the military. You know, you've landed, you know, in the late 2000s, early uh, sorry, the early 2000s, late 90s where the operations do go up in tempo and you do get afforded the opportunity to have operational experience. Do you think that, you know, that directly impacted how quickly you, you promoted and the knowledge that you, you gain? Cause you move like I'm, I moved around a lot in my career. I look at other people yeah. and they haven't. However, the people who haven't moved around potentially as much because they have a continuity and rightly so they, they're good at their mm. jobs and rightly so they get reported on correctly and they move up but you have seemed to have moved at a reasonable pace um, and moved around. What do, you, what do you think the factor is in that? Because, I mean, you come back to two as a corporal yeah, and you pick up in that time period, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, I don't know, it, like you say, some of it is luck of the draw or luck of, luck of the drafters, whatever you want to say. But um, I think what helped me to progress quicker than maybe other people is... Um, it, it was having that operational early on, it was having the operational experience. And then it was um, going from two. I was, I was extremely lucky to pick up my corporal after, I think it was four and a half years, maybe. So, and geez, that was an eye opener as well. You know, going on to my FT, FT one in 2004 with, you know, guys that had been in for, you know, 15, 20, 20 odd years. And you're there. like, how long have you done? Four and a half years. Oh my God. Yeah, you're kind of like, shit, I need to pull my finger out of my ass and get this one nailed. Um, but then, and then, so going to training, performing that training role, whether it was TSF or whether it was, was uh, crossing 159, that really prepared me and that kind of established me as as a corporal. I, the, the fundamentally, you know, the skills, the DPs, all that good stuff. And then to go back to the squadron, um, having already served there, having already served on two, there's guys that I knew, you know, it was like, you know, it was just easy. So you instantly felt comfortable. You had the confidence um, to, to get, and I, I actually went back to sea flight. So I was a corporal on sea flight. Um, so yeah, it's, it's perfect. You know, it just sets you up for success. Um, already had established relationships. So obviously the biggest step change was I left, uh, the squadron in 2004 when obviously they were just starting to do more of the force protection duties out of Basra um, so I kind of missed that that three years where there was the, the, the Basra tour uh, and then I joined the squadron again and we deployed 2008 to, to Basra um, so the step change between equipment TTPs um, uh, and you know just the, the method of the of operations was totally different, you know, IED threat versus when we, it was 2003, it was small arms threat, you know, so just a totally different threat um, picture. So that was the biggest thing to get my head around. Um, and it's to your point there that, you know, training posts are great, but you're only as current as your last tour or, mm. you know, so it's important that whilst, it's advantageous to go and do training and stuff like that. You know, you, you should really get back to frontline operational um, squadrons to, to get yourself back up to speed and get you, you know, keep up, I suppose. Yeah, yeah for sure. Obviously you do come back as a, obviously you're a huge influence on the squadron as it sort of arrives into, into that theater, but there was a big change on, 
in the way we did things anyway, you know, certain vehicles changed that we'd planned to have and, and you know, the way we were going to conduct our operations was like changed and dictated battle space lines would moved. Um, and you mm. sort of like had to move positions as well in, into a senior NCO's position in that sort of slap around the face of arriving with one set of plans, executing them for a couple of months and then change. And it's like, okay, you're not a corporal anymore. You're in senior NCO. So how does that sort of look yeah. and staying on the same squadron as well, which isn't an easy thing to do. Yeah. It was again, crazy. You know, halfway through the tour to be told, you know, you're, you're into the groove. You know, you'd like you say, there were so many different changes between, you know, doing a lot of, um, um, mobile foot patrols to suddenly we were giving bulldogs because of the threat and the, you know, the threat had changed and, you know, the, the mastiffs and so on and so forth. So a totally different um, way of operating, you know, people getting attached to be attached to part of the squadron. And then, yeah, to be told that, right, you know, Tom, you've, you've picked up, you're on your FT2, you know, you're flying back, you know, in a week's time or two weeks time, whatever it was. So that actually split, yeah, like you say, that split the tour up for me. So literally flew back into UK, had a week's prep, started my FT2, got smashed on that for, for whatever it was, eight weeks. Um, and again, that was uh, myself and, and Bally and Jamie Thorpe. So we were, we were all on the same FT2. Such a good time because yeah. we'd all come off to, onto that course. We were, we'd been out on tour. We were fit. We were switched on. We were just, you know, absolute keenos. Um, and yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. And that then just the finished that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We finished, finished that training course. We all passed successfully. Um, and, and, and then we're back on a plane. I think it was a week's R and R. So that was it. Yeah. It was, so we had our two weeks R and R either side of the course. So we had a week to prep a week to just turn all our kit round and then fly back out to, 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 to Basra. And then, yeah. And then sigh, um jamie and i were both um sort of rostered into um sort of watch keeper and backfilling r and r for for some of the some of the corporals and some of the sergeants when they uh went back on their own r and r so yeah com again totally different yeah seeing it from a totally different angle constantly being out on the ground doing foot patrols you know um vehicle patrols to suddenly being the watch keeper actually being in a position where you were not coordinating but you were providing that overwatch and providing that support you know and um so that was again fantastic exposure you know and yeah it's was, uh, it was good yeah i mean we, we so you come back from there and it's interesting you come back obviously how did it affect the fact that you straight away you came back and you got given your own flight and you know we're all told you're going to afghanistan and we're given a timeline for that i, I found that i mean personally i found it super healthy knowing that i had a timeline to work to um but there was a lot of courses and a lot of things to be done because again afghan was a hugely different theater what were the pressures yeah in that change to that different theater yes yeah, it's, it's pretty i look back now and I, you know it's it's crazy you know to come back, I was so I, when I got promoted to um, sergeant, I was taken off C flight and made um, sergeant on A flight. So a brand new flight, um, you know, brand new corporals, trying to establish myself as a as a sergeant. Um, but again, those relationships were already there, um, even down to you know the the SACs and the lunch jacks. You know, some of those guys I'd taken through training. You know, so that 
that was a fantastic as well to be their sergeant, having taken them through training and then seeing how well they were doing and preparing them for their Lance Jacks course and stuff like that. And, you know, the likes of Abe Williams, Tony Shelton, Dave Barstow, they were my corporals, like three absolute keynotes, fit, you know, loved the job, knew the job inside out. You know, you know what Abe was like with his guns. You know, he was just, <laughs> if in doubt, deploy the guns. You know what I mean? So it was, yeah. it, I couldn't help but succeed. And I suppose that's, you know, kind of one thing I've always remembered now is that, you know, you're only successful because of the people that, you kind of have around you and those guys were fantastic you know what I mean for, for me as a new sergeant um, a brand new flight commander you know just gone come out of J-Rock having to coach and mentor him you know so that he was prepared and, and equipped to support the flight and the men and me kind of I suppose just in the background pulling a few strings just to make sure it went as well as it could do yeah not to uh, sort of so, um not to counter through that but uh, yeah. the, the next tour too much obviously given your own the, the squadron goes out there and decides to do its business in a particular way and and uh, you know you're given your own ao to deal mm. with which is obviously a lot of responsibility because again the way we're going to operate you're operating without the flight commander <clears throat> you know independently a, a lot of the time i know that your ao kind of demanded a little you guys to do your business a bit differently to the way that we were kind of in the other aos that were a bit more open um and obviously, young uh, Luke, obviously losing his life uh, in the early part of the tour, again, has an influence on mm. the way we do our business and the, and the way that sort of the vehicles we have. But if you were to sort of like sum up a few of the highlights for that tour, what what would they be for you as a, you know, as a commander out there? I think it was that, like you say, we all had our own different um, areas of responsibility and, and sort of dissected the ground defended area as as well as we could and like you say you all had your own area of responsibility but there was this overarching I suppose responsibility to support each other so you know I look I think back to that day when um, you know when uh, they struck the IED and we were we were located to the north in a position of overwatch and, and, you know, heard it come over the radio. And one of the key things I remember is we were actually acting as a relay passage and passing some of the, you know, the communications to and from the, the CP and um, ground. Um, um, yeah. From the CP to those guys on the ground to, you know, pass information. And, you know, that, uh, you know, that for me sticks out as one of the, you know, bits that I'll sort of never never forget is that being able to in some way help you know a fellow flight you know a fellow you know squadron member who you know part of it but then also it's the it's the knock-on effect so you know um how the squadron reacted to that um how the the individuals reacted to that because you've all got mates on different flights and you've all got your own relationships going on so how does that but you know you're trained to you know, be mentally robust, robust, physically robust, and that kind, of, that resilience that was demonstrated over that period of time following, following, um, you know, the ID. I think that's kind of, yeah, it sticks in my mind. You know. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, it's a it's a huge joint force base. It, um, I know obviously Basra was a big, uh, big base, but I, I mean, I certainly felt like I had a huge, a lot more exposure to other nations and stuff like. 
um, and obviously moving into your next couple of roles, what's sort of like the best unit you've worked with outside of, you know, directly working with, you know, the, your own core? Yeah. Um, so for, after that um, Afghan tour in, in 2010, I actually um, went from a commission. So, you know, so I went from a commission um, and to, to go to, as a RAF Reg officer, so um, ground defence officer. So, you know, did all that, passed all that, went to Cranwell, you know, did, did the elements of the J-Rock that was required to do. Um, and then um, following J-Rock, went to three squadron uh, and whilst i was at three squadron i got deployed out with um uh prince of wales royal regiment so i was attached to them as a um officer commanding a mentoring uh yes yeah, so I, I got deployed out with, uh, under the army unit under um telic 15 i think it was at the time um to be officer commanding uh, an embedded mentoring team so training up um afghan uniform police so that was great. You know, that was kind of pinnacle of my career because there I was, RAF regiment officer now, um, with my RAF reg team um, and uh, being deployed with the army to an army brigade um, under um, operating under command of, of um, the Prince of Wales Royal Regiment. There, um, that was fantastic. I was just going to say, like, how much, you know, of the joint world do you think you'd been seeing prior to becoming an officer, you know, on a squadron in comparison to what it was like then when you moved over to that world and started to obviously, one, work for different chains of command and, and, and also what other sort of elements of, did you get exposure to at that point? Yeah, I think up until that point there, I'd not had... Um much exposure to that kind of tri-service environment um pretty much spent my whole career you know within the RAF reg um obviously exposure to other branches and trades of the, of the RAF but um not the army I mean we had the the joint NBC regiment and one RTR at Honington but they were on the other side of the airfield didn't really have that much interaction with them um and that's that's just the way it was um but I think, yeah, being actually deployed out with with that brigade, you know, nearly seven months, I think it was, was that was my real exposure to operating, not necessarily tri service, but certainly with with, with army and and and, work. and you know, as RAF Reg, we, you know, we we do all the the infantry training and the same weapon systems, same vehicles, same TTPs, everything like that. So to actually, you know, I suppose almost benchmark yourself against your peers you know in, in in the army was was fantastic and and you know we, that that was great really really enjoyed that and just having different discussions um you know with you know my peers you know other ops officers other officers and even for the sergeants and the corporals that were with me on my training team they had exposure to corporals and sergeants and color sergeants in the army and and just those relationships and sharing stories, sharing dits, bit of banter, bit of shanter. Yeah, it, it just, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. yeah. So obviously why you've, uh, you brought up the story of dits, what's the, what's the best dit? What's the funniest story? If I was to gather everyone back around the Tilly um, and pull up a sandbag, what would, what would the story that came out be? Oh, there's, there's, there are, and I was thinking about this today when I was thinking, yeah, I was going to come on and, and, and speak to you. And 
there's just so many different funny stories and you know i would never want to incriminate myself or anyone <laughs> else but um blocks and when we're out you know, on the piss and when we're on exercise when we're on tour you know you just genuinely i can't pick out one um particular dip or story um there's just so many and they just revolve around you know a board gunner is a is a very very dangerous gunner <laughs> <laughs> do you think do, I, I kind of have a question off of, off of the back of that but like do you think that knowing how much of a chimp and i'm going to just target you directly and i'm not obviously i'm an angel yeah but like knowing how much of a chimp you are um and everything and and the way you would carry yourself when no you know when there was no officers around and stuff like that do you think that had an influence on the way that you led as an officer idle hands and all that i think so i think so i think as uh I think I had a, a canny way of just ignoring what I needed to ignore but the, but I always found that that even when I was you know chimping around and messing around there was always that line that you could do you know what we're being serious now there was always that grown up I suppose grown up element to it where you could be absolutely chimping around messing around but do you know what stop fucking around this is serious everyone would just you know, would just revert back to being professional and being on the point and being on the ball. And I think that's kind of the one thing that I tried to um, implement when, when I was an officer is, you know, have your fun, chimp around, do what you want. But when we need to get shit done, let's get shit done and let's do it, you know, professionally and, and, and properly. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, and that's that, I suppose that, that resonates through leadership and all that type of stuff that you know you know lads will be lads they'll chimp around they'll monk they'll you know they'll do stupid things but you know for god's sake just you know as your officer as your boss just tell me and then i can support you i can help you but if you've actually really fucked up then stand by really. yeah yeah i think um, it's interesting how you can develop a switch in people and, and it, it'd be an interesting sort of thing to dive into a little bit deeper maybe we probably don't have the time for it right now but mm. how you can get someone to go from being like messing around and everything and then have a whole team just turn themselves on and go and execute. And then the second they get back off of executing yeah. and everything's done, it's like straight back into chimp mode. And you're like, how do yeah. you get that as a collective? I know that obviously one person might have, you know, might be seriously motivated. They might have their own motivations, but as a leader to be able to turn around and go, right, it's go time. And everyone just, you know, they're on it. Mm. If you were to go back and speak to sort of young Tom, you know, I, maybe, it, yeah. I don't know how far you'd go back, like dream sheet or how far you go back, but, or even to speak to somebody else and say, Hey, you know, if you want to be successful in, in life and in this space, don't worry about the things that we're going to teach you along the way, because they're skills or courses that you will do. But these three things, you know, fundamentally, they're going to make you successful going through. Um, I, never your personality is your one your one trait that yours you know you'll never ever uh, lose or you'll never ever change your personality is your personality and be true to it so if you're an arsehole just be an arsehole if you're a nice bloke be a nice bloke you know it's it's kind of because that's what people like they you know that consistency so i think it's yeah being true to your personality um i think it's having clear goals you know um about where you want to be and how you want to get there. And you might go in an absolutely convoluted route to get there, but you still get to where you want to be. And it might take two years, it might take 10 years, but being clear on what you want and, and driving for that. Um, and I suppose the third one 
oh, sounds a bit cheesy, but and it's sort of kind of like, you know, fit body, fit mind, you know, just keep yourself, you know, just keep yourself fit. And, you know, you, you'll, you'll be surprised at what you can achieve and how resilient you become both mentally and, and physically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if uh, you're sort of, I know, obviously, we'll sort of finish up your sort of career in a, in a sort of a, in a quick way here, but you get out and you're a civilian and, and obviously you can tell people, you know, you're down in Australia, you've changed your life massively. Mm. And I think it goes back to my original point of saying, you know, the Tom who filled in the form saying, I'm going to go get ready for this you know from my perspective when i watched you decide to be an officer and you just went and did it and then mm. when you decided to go to australia you know that you tried to do it in several different ways um but you just made it you just made it happen do you think maybe mm. maybe now listening to your whole story that's always the way you've been you just decided that that was the route you were going to take to get to two what about australia like how's that you know i know where you are yeah. now how does that path look mm. exit in the military and ending up where you are today. Yeah, I, I only left the military because I wanted to to move to Australia. Um, I, and as you say, I, I uh, trans transferred, so doing transfer from the RAF to the Royal Australian Air Force. Um, but at that time, you know, as a corporal, I tried it. I tried it, um, and as an officer, I tried it. So, and that was again, that was one of the things that drove me to take my commission. Is the yeah, yes, I wanted all the responsibility and all that good stuff. But ultimately, I had an end goal that I wanted to move to Australia. You know, I kind of my stuff. It was, it was, I knew it's where I wanted to live and end up. You know, especially with you know, sixteen years in, I was an officer, flight lieutenant, living the dream. Got some Gucci postings. You know, my final posting was a fantastic posting down to to Folkestone. Um, but I wanted to move to Australia. So yeah, decided to, to PVR and um, managed, luckily again, managed to get a job with a, a consulting firm up in the city, um, which again, that ultimate goal of using that firm as a stepping stone to, to potentially transfer out to Australia and, you know, get all my visas and all that type of stuff. So it was, and I'm not just saying it because it's bang on nearly five years, but I, I said to my wife, I said, you know, we need to do this in five years. I, I want to be a permanent resident from leaving the military and five years out, I want to be a permanent resident in, in Australia. Um, and it, and it just so happens that I've been incredibly lucky to one, get a job outside the military two get a transfer to the, uh, one, the, the Perth office with that firm and, you know, get my visa, get my uh, permanent residency and now I'm just waiting for my citizenship to, to drop in and hopefully that will drop in sometime next year. And that's, that's my five year plan. So it's kind of, yeah, when I look back, I, I, I don't think I'm that driven, but yeah, the, the, the signs are there that I'm, I must be, uh, yeah, I must be quite driven because it's just, or incredible. I, I put it down to luck. I've just, the planets have aligned and I've been incredibly lucky in my choices. So, Well, if you ever listen to me, I don't like the word luck. I think it's used in the wrong context. And I know the context <laughs> that you're using it in is might be maybe different, but I think it's overly used in the context that things fall into your lap. And I've, for those of us who've worked with you, Tom, you are extremely driven and we're all expected to keep up. So just so you know, 
<laughs> to see you tracking. Well, you are driven and the rest of us are playing catch up constantly. But we appreciate, I mean, I appreciate it. It's had a huge influence on the way I, I conduct my business. That time that then you and I have spent together. Yeah. You know, if you were speaking to like, because you've got this unique thing where you've, you know, you've changed country, you're out of the military, you did it at an interesting period in your life. You know, a lot of people like wouldn't change over to the commission or wouldn't do this that, and the other, but obviously you had a goal in mind. If you were to speaking to people to leaving the military now and sort of think about, you know, you, mm. the job you're doing in Folkestone, as you said, how much of an influence have you brought from those jobs, from that sort of joint world? And, and what would you sort of say to people leaving the military and, you know, going and transitioning out? How much of it do they bring with them? How much yeah. of it do they leave behind? How much is of it is it is baggage that you don't need or do need? Mm. Yeah. For me personally, I think, you know, and I think about you know, yourself and, you know, all the other the guys that I know in the military and, and at, hands down, any one of you could step out to the outside of the military and use the, the characteristics, the attributes, the leadership skills, the management skills, um, the relationship skills, people skills, resilience. You know, I could go on listing them, all those things, all that stuff, you know, people pay thousands for that on, on civvy street you know and we when we we're in the military we used to say civvies pay thousands to do this civvies <laughs> pay thousands to on the on the flip side people pay thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds um to get the skills that we have honed over however many years you spent in the military you know leadership management you know all the all the stuff i've spoken about there so i think the biggest thing for me and that's what i learned when i was down in folkestone starting to be that kind of staff officer role where you're liaising with agencies up in London and, and, you know, different for, you know, foreign and Commonwealth office and all these other different, suddenly you're like, shit, I could, I can actually do this. Yeah. So having, having confidence in your own ability and, and what you've developed over so many years of experience and, and knowledge and training, um, it really does perfect, prepare you for getting out. And it doesn't matter what you do. You know, it doesn't matter what you turn your hand to. You're, you're resilient enough to do what you want to do as long as you, it's, it's what you want to do. So um, yeah, that's, that's, I think that's probably the biggest thing for me is, you know, have have confidence in your own abilities and what you you can achieve stepping onto city street um and yeah you know i suppose i i miss i do miss the military um yeah but you know i think i i only i look back with such fond memories that i think that's an awesome place to be you know and uh yeah and it's 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 such a big part of my life um and yeah i never want to forget it so yeah but i always i always rely on my the stuff that i learned in the military to carry me forward on in civil street yeah obviously a lot of people will be listening and thinking oh he's down in australia and it's an you know it's an absolute dream and you keep using the word luck and i'm, I'm gonna maybe edit that out so no one can hear it i'm joking um but uh, <laughs> it's hard work people that get you to these places but what's the biggest myth then about living a life in australia that you had before you left and you've managed to get rid of oh um i don't know the biggest myth um there's not as many beasties as uh, everyone says. <laughs> I, I, I think I've been out here. Yeah, I've been out here. What five? No, four. Four years. I've seen one snake, 
and uh, you, you you speak to people, you know, who, who you know, Australia. There must be snakes everywhere. They're hanging off the roofs. But now I've seen one, yeah. and even that was just like the the back of its tail. Um, but no, yeah, it's, it's fantastic down here. I, yeah. I I do have pinch me moments when I'm when I get up and you know drive down the coast to work. It's it's not too bad, mate. Yeah, <laughs> flip flops and board shorts and barbecues every day. That's it. Yeah, thongs. Slowly picking up all the Aussie lingo as well, oh, which God, is yeah. pretty funny. Yeah. Um, if I, if I took you back now and I, and I put you in a, a platoon sergeant's position because I don't understand what the other thing they call it is, but um, if I put you in a platoon sergeant position and I put you on a desert island, I'll give you a, you know a rifle and a and some ammo and a set of comms. But what other three items have are a must go load for you in that position? Jeez. Oh, I'd probably make sure I pack Sean McKinnell because <laughs> if, 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 if you pack Sean McKinnell, you know you've got the keenest thing in NATO, so he'll, <laughs> he'll, do, any, he'll do anything. So he'll have an OP set up within minutes. No. Um, ah, that, there's, there's plenty of stuff you take. I'd probably take, randomly, I'd take a mirror so I can just keep laughing at myself. Um, <laughs> I don't know, I'd probably take yeah, a pen and paper as well just to to uh, you know, write stuff down, draw stuff, keep myself entertained. Um, yeah, but yeah, I'll definitely have Sean McKinnell with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a unique one. I like it. Uh, yeah, funny, actually, Sean and, uh, has agreed to come on, so we'll see what he has to say. Uh, hopefully he gets to listen to this before he comes on. There you go. You <laughs> better repay the favour. <laughs> see, see what the reply is. Mate, I, I appreciate you taking the time. If you had sort of one closing thought um, across the wider community, you know, uh, you know, all services, guys who are veterans or, or, or still in, what would your sort of closing thought to everyone be? Um, I think, yeah, just take as many opportunities as you can. Like, you know, we haven't touched on it too much, but I suppose as I progressed through my career, you know, RAF regiment, but it was only in the back end of my career, like the last three or four years where I, I got real exposure to that joint environment. And it, it's so interesting. Yeah, you're, you're, you know, mucking in with your peers from the army, from the navy, from the marines. Um, you know, from the wider RAF. You know, you get so much more out of it. Um, and you know, I met so many decent, good people from other cap badges and other services. Um, and you, you kind of have this early in your career. You kind of have this bubble where you, it's it's rough reg, it's two squadron. You know, but actually, once you kind of, I suppose you sort of burst that bubble and you actually start getting experiences and exposure to other cap badges, other services, other regiments, other people. It's, you know, it's, it's fantastic. It just kind of opens up a, another part of your career. So that's, yeah, like I say, that's, that's probably what I'd say is take those opportunities. And if you can get that joint exposure. Yeah. I think we're stronger together. And, and you know, if you want, if you want to amass an effect, I don't want to say fires, you want to amass an effect, no matter what it is, whether it's, you know, um, you know, kinetic effect or not, you know, that you can only mm. do that in a, in a joint space and understanding a joint space. And I think I look back at the, the best kind of leaders I had, and they were the ones that were willing to integrate with other people. I just think if you look at, if you really oversimplify it on our Basra tour and those young guys from the army that were expected to come over to us and drive mm. the armor when we were converting over and how they were like mm. welcomed into the flight by the leadership and how difficult that must've been for them. If, if people don't yeah. have that attitude, how quickly that could have come unstuck. Um, yeah. And I, 
I'd encourage what you've just said. Um, yeah. You know, jointery is key. We're stronger together than apart. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, stronger together, and whether we like it or not, we're that not we're not that dissimilar. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, Tom, appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time, man. No, it's great to catch up, Neil, and um, you know, good luck to you and and you know. I, I think the uh, two squadron hundredth anniversary is 2022. So I'll, I'll start saving up my, my flights back to the UK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Live podcasts all day. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I appreciate you taking the time to listen. All our podcasts sit on the nine foot night killer collective soul feed forge, not made and the JTAP podcast. Take some time, maybe listen to one of the other podcast series that you're not listening to and give us your feedback. All these things only happen because of the Nine Foot Night Killer community, and we really appreciate them. Thank you, everybody, for listening.